The brand new WERU Community Radio app has been launched. Now you can listen to WERU live and archive shows from your phone. This past year, WERU received a grant from the Maine Community Foundation to develop a WERU smartphone app to make community radio more accessible. The new app is available on both Apple and Android smartphones. Just search for WERU Community Radio in your app store. A very big thank you to the Maine Community Foundation for funding to develop the app. We hope you enjoy it. Totally. Support for WERU comes from Blue Hill Books, presenting Terry Tempest Williams reading from her collection, Erosion, Essays of Undoing, on Saturday, November 16th, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. in Emlyn Hall at the Bay School in Blue Hill, 374-5632 or bluehillbooks.com. You're listening to WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill and WERU.org everywhere else. Don't forget to call us if you ever like to from Zimbabwe or wherever you live. 207-469-6600 comes right in here. Give us a break. Call us now and help us out. We're always looking for new members. we got five seconds before the hour of 10 o'clock, which is boat talk time. Stay tuned for WERU for the rest of the day. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's not a really bad morning here locally at WERU Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, and on the Internet, WERU.org. And we're the ones who uh, bring you Boat Talk. It's a uh, call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. And I uh, usually come up with a, a pun about now, but I have, I'm going to admit not one of my own, one that my wife gave me from the Internet, but it sounded pretty good. The uh, Swedish Navy is now putting barcodes on the sides of the hulls of all their boats. <laughs> so when they return, they can scan the Navy and... Yes, I got it. <laughs> so that's why I don't crit, uh, no credit for that Scandinavian, one. Scandinavian, yes. Uh, okay, good one. Uh, we are, again, how lucky are we to be in here doing boat talk uh, this snowy morning? And we got our friend uh, John Johansson sitting in this morning, too, Maine Coast newsman. And uh, we were just talking about a uh, uh, quite a piece of work just coming to Belfast, presidential yacht Sequoia. Yep, Sequoia. Yes, it was in the mud, I believe, in, in the tidal mud down in Virginia, uh, not doing too good. Um, they jacked it up with a bunch of house-moving stuff, put on a barge. Great picture we got from the Bangor Daily News here of it uh, being tugged by a tow through uh, past the foot of Manhattan up into Belfast Harbor. And uh, Todd French has been contracted by some people called the Equator Group, a Washington, D.C.-based private equity investment firm. And those are good words around a very old, rotten uh, piece of historic wooden boat. Cause, I'm uh, thinking they're called the Equator Group because they're a bunch of fat old white guys. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, like I say, this is uh, more than a bit of a restoration project. Uh, Sequoia is a very old wooden boat, uh, presidential yacht, uh, a lot of history. And uh, much as uh, possibly a four-year restoration there, Todd is proposing to build a 
uh, observation window around the boat as it's being fixed so people can watch. I already made a big uh, yeah. splash when it come to town. Big crowd got to watch that. So Yeah, it probably doesn't need to be explained, but in the mud is not a good way to store a boat. Not in general. And, uh, again, uh, nice to have uh, uh, well-funded boat nuts behind, uh, you know, uh, and and to find restoration, we can start as I was telling Alan, a piece of the settee from the uh, main cabin, build around that, and you know, or uh, sometimes you just save the name. Oh man, that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> and as we were saying, uh, why not just uh, you know uh, build a new hull and uh, put the old stuff in it? But still, uh, you know, they got a hell of a job in front of them there. So mm-hmm. I remember Giffy talking about this boat many many years ago. I think it was back during the uh, Kennedy administration. And saying that it was starting to show some signs of wear then, and it needed a lot of work at that point. Yeah. Uh, Talk about uh, interesting boats. The University of Maine has made a boat on a laser printer, and uh, it is the biggest laser-printed boat ever in the world. they got three Guinness records for the printer, the boat, and the biggest uh, 3D-printed object. This is the uh, composite lab at University of Maine, uh, Habib Dogger. And they are using a plastic cellulose blend that I think is uh, probably pretty special to them. This is a 25-foot uh, center console patrol boat called Three Dorigo. It weighs about 5,000 pounds, and it's pretty uh, uh, flashy, good-looking. Yep. And it might be at the Boat Builder Show. Be interesting. Yeah, in wow. In yeah. March. Yeah. I know talks are on, ongoing as we speak. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Habib Dogger, kind of world class at what he does up there at the composite lab, and he's just also got a uh, for the Bangor Daily News a new five million dollar uh, grant to boost offshore wind projects, which are back on with our new governor now, kind of uh, held up for well, the last few years. Well, that's a floating, right? Yes, and again, they had one off of Castine that I got to see quite a bit, mm-hmm. and uh, they're proposing three off of Monhegan, and. Uh, you know, more to come uh, on that. They uh, are, uh, again, a uh, $5 million grant for that. Good for them. I can, uh, can't. I'm having a hard time visualizing a printer that can actually print something that large. They've got the largest printer in the world, don't they? Yeah. yeah. I'm told it's like a big hot glue gun that just makes passes and, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I'm thinking a, a chopper gun. Remember chopper guns? <laughs> yeah. Oh, good Lord. At the Young yeah. Brothers? Yeah. 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 The young brothers it uses, uses uh, cellulose instead of a... Fiberglass chopper. And again, the interesting thing is what they're doing with wood fiber is the uh, epoxy people call it Miracle Fiber W, you know, wood fibers, uh, and a a wood fiber uh, cellulose, uh, plastic cellulose mix, it says here. Um, Stonington, Maine, uh, being down at the end of the Deer Isle there and uh, surrounded by water and all about water, commissioned a study from uh, GEI Consultants of Portland to examine flooding scenarios uh, over the next uh, century uh, and what's going to be like down in Stonington 2030, 2050, and 2100 if current trends and uh, predictions uh, keep coming. And the headline is Stonington underwater by 2100. So, um, But the town manager, uh, Henry Trevoros, uh, Stonington's economic development director and a member of the Flood Vulnerability Advisory Committee, said something I thought was pretty damn smart. He says... We have to start planning and setting aside money for future capital projects. We have to start getting prepared for this right now. We need real engineered ideas for each piece of town-owned infrastructure. 
uh, as he says, now we have to start thinking about this stuff, and it is now. So, you know. Yeah, now is <clears throat> yeah is coming quicker and quicker too, isn't it? Uh, water will come. Is uh, you know. Remember, Nantucket used to not be an island. There you go. Right. Yeah. Four thousand years ago, Nantucket was high and dry. Oh, I can believe that. It's real. It's real shallow out there. I've been out there. Uh, yeah, very, very shallow. Out and there. they move those shoals all around. Yeah. As well, like to, uh, without GPS, uh, you know, I'd be nervous as a cat out there. But you yeah. know, yeah, you can stand and not see land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As long as you got good sneakers, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my wife was asked in Bar Harbor when she was uh, working uh, retail if uh, we brought the islands in during the winter. We do. Yeah. Fuel them and water them. Fuel and water, that's true. I hadn't thought about what. <laughs> Outside storage, though, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, yes. Do you remember Corliss Holland? Who? Holland Boat Shop? Holland? Oh, yes. Uh, he, yeah. It's Glenn's father. Well, one time he was asked by a tourist how big the lake was. He says, well, I don't know, but it all goes all the way to England. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. It's actually growing. <laughs> and it is. It's, uh, of course, boat, boat, boat storage season. Uh, boats are like anything else. The better you put them away, the better you will find it when you uh, come back up. to it, you know? <laughs> That's for sure, yes. Uh, how's that for an idea, you know, uh, for uh, more chores for your fall? Uh, better you take care of it now. Uh, again, uh, no such thing as a lower no-maintenance boat, so... Um, you know, if you've got one, uh, clean it up good before you uh, tuck it away and then put go to Madden's, get one of them blue tops, put something over it, honey. <laughs> blue tops. You know, you were talking before about the storm, but you would have seen the devastation down southern Maine. In the last one, there were 15 boats up right around Handy Boat that they had to haul off the bricks. Some of, them were, some of them were safe. And what was interesting was a lot of the trouble was because they still had the Biminis up and the sail covers on, uh, yep. and some of them hit uh, bottom at hull speed yeah. Ooh. when Ooh. they were coming into shore. No, absolutely criminal to uh, see a boat that is in peril. Uh, and, again, the sail cover, uh, sail is still on the boom. Uh, Bimini, the dodger is up, uh, you know, yeah. that uh, you've just uh, basically pointed a gun at your head. Yeah. Well, speaking of in peril, <laughs> we have uh, Skip Strong on the, on the line oh, now. Nice. We're going to be talking about... Uh, Driving big boats and probably in peril too. Good morning, Skip. Welcome to Boat Talk. Okay, Skip, you, you there now? I'm here. Okay, yes, you sound much better now. Glad to have you back. I guess we'll do a little quick introduction. Uh, uh, you were on Boat Talk. I forget when it was. I'm going to say September oh three. September. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> I was going to say ten years ago. I, I, I like to think it was one of the best interviews we ever done. Alan says uh, what happened, and uh, you know, you tell a story that's uh, wow. Yeah, the, the book entitled Imperil. There's the connection. So uh, we'll let you take it from there first. There's a little intro of the Imperil, but let's get on to. Uh, Talk, driving big boats around locally now, too. But first, uh, Imperil. Uh, you want me to talk about that? Yeah, well, yeah. Right. How's so it doing? Actually, we are, uh, we are four day, three days away from the 25th anniversary of that. <laughs> 20, yeah. Yeah, so that, November, November 15th, 1994. Um, so the, the short version is, uh, I was captain of an oil tanker making a trip from Louisiana around to Jacksonville, Florida. Um, there wound up being a tropical storm kicking up in the area. 
Uh, first, it went over towards, uh, uh, started in the Caribbean, went up over uh, Dominican Republic, Cuba, came in, sat off uh, Key West for a while, then um, shot across and uh, came across uh, the coast of Florida. And we were wound up going through that storm. Wasn't too bad for us, you know, 50, 60 knots of wind, 15, 20 foot seas. Uh, but a tug and barge got caught out in this off the east coast of Florida, um, and they wound up having a bunch of mechanical problems, um, and they were basically getting towed by the barge towards the shore. So they started asking for help around 2 o'clock or so in the morning of November 15th. We were the only vessel in the area. Uh, we came up, saw what was going on, came up with a plan um, to try and take uh, both the tug and barge in tow, and um, keep them safe uh, until the storm went by. Um, took us three tries to get a line hooked up to the tug. This is all happening in the middle of the night. Um, it's a 15, 20 foot seas, lots of wind, rain going sideways. Finally got some lines on, started towing this guy away from a shoal area, which he could have gone over. Uh, but that 28-foot shoal would not have done well with my 35-foot draft on the tanker I was on. Um, so we got them all out and clear, started to get to be daylight, um, and was able to look back and see what was going on and what we had and saw a barge that basically looked like it had a Quonset hut sitting over the top of it. And um, never seen anything like that. Asked the captain what he was towing, and he said, well, I didn't want to tell you before, but liquid fuel cell for the space shuttle um and sort of because of, because of what we did and how we did it um we ultimately wound up with salvage rights to everything behind us um and uh you know wound up ultimately with the largest salvage award that had ever been given out but it's a that was sort of secondary to going out and helping you know the five guys who were on that tug who were having a really bad night that night <laughs> Um, and, you know, so it, it, it wound up being the best sea story I've ever had a chance to tell. And um, we did turn it into a book after all the legal stuff was done um, called In Peril. And it's uh, still out and available if someone hasn't read it. Skip, Mike Joyce, uh, you were uh, a little immodest there, but uh, as you come up on this thing, um, you know, um, as you so uh, ably point out, uh, Loaded oil tankers don't rescue uh, tugs. It's supposed to be the opposite way around, you know. Yeah, uh, it is. It was um, it was a unique set of circumstances um, that I'm not sure could really happen again. I mean, it could very possibly happen again. But we had the advantage of being fully loaded, um, not a whole lot of freeboard because we were a single skin tanker. Um, so we didn't have a huge amount of freeboard, so we were we could we could do some stuff, but it was also dangerous out on deck. But the big advantage we had was the ship was propelled by a steam turbine, um, and the, that meant that I could go from full ahead to stop to full astern, or not even bothering to pause through there, because we had it was just a throttle valve as opposed to air needed to start and stop a diesel engine. Um, if someone tried to do the amount of maneuvers we did that night with a diesel engine, they would be out of air after about the first dozen, um, you know, engine commands going through going through a stop bell. 
Um, so there's no way you could have done that with a with a diesel ship or a motor ship. But the steam turbine gave us the ability to do that. Um, you know, and I had a really good crew on board who knew what they were doing, both in the deck department and in the engine department, who were able to allow me to do some of these things that weren't weren't normal for our operations. Um, and the guys on the tug did everything they needed to do to help as well. So it was, you know, it was a joint effort to get this stuff all done. You're still way immodest because uh, uh, there was a rocket gun involved there trying to get a line to the tug. Nobody's ever found that yet. But basically you handed uh, from a loaded oil tanker to a tug in those conditions, you handed them the line to get the line to them. The, the we, we did. We seamanship did was an extraordinary boat handling, just extraordinary well, boat handling. Well, thank you. But it was, it was, yeah, it took three tries to figure it out, but we did figure it out. Um, and we were able to uh, basically make a lead that the tugboat could um, get into where we were being pushed down to the bow of the tug um, and able to at the final, you know, the final connection thing was basically one of my ABs was able to stand on deck and hand the heaving line, you know, over to the bow of the <laughs> tug and then work on the messenger line and the, the two big lines. Incredible. You know, it was, you know, it's also one of those things that this happened when I was 32 years old, um, probably not smart enough to make all the decisions I should be making. Um, uh, and, you know, 25 years farther on, if the same situation presented itself, I'd still go and take a look and try and help. I'm not sure I'd make the same decisions today, just having that much more experience and knowing all the things that can go wrong. But that's why, you know, younger people, you know, do the, you know, do the things that um, uh, sort of gain notoriety, I would say. You also uh, still being a little immodest there. I don't believe uh, you over mentioned a thing called Bethel Shoal, 28 foot spot. You're in a 35 foot uh, draft uh, tanker with, as uh, I believe you pointed out, 10 million uh, barrels of number six oil aboard. Uh, 10, and, million, 10 million gallons of fixed oil, but yeah, 235,000 yeah. barrels. Yeah, that would have been a big, if, if things had gone wrong and not gone well, um, that would have been a, a really bad thing. But it wasn't GPS days. It was Loran days. You didn't know exactly where that shoal was. Well, we, we had GPS, but it was, you know, it was early versions. Um, we definitely were still using Loran to navigate, but this, you know, we had GPS, but it was not the accuracy of what we are talking about today. There were no electronic charts. Um, there are, you know, the you were too far offshore to get any good radar ranges and bearings from stuff. So we were, we had a good idea where we were, but uh, not to the level of, uh, of confidence that we would, you know, in today's world. Yeah, and as you, I believe, said, uh, you know, it was young, it was my first command with more experience. I might not have or shouldn't have, and... Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, there you were doing uh, one thing at a time that looked reasonable. And, uh, yeah. But as you also says, if I'd gone up on Bethel Shoal with the Cherry Valley, uh, Joe Hazelwood up in Alaska would have been a footnote under my name. You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a you know that was a that was certainly a very bad accident up there, but it was kind of out of the way. Um, if you had six oil going up on the beaches of Florida. Um, you know, in the beginning of November, that yeah, that it would not have been good. Just extraordinary. So you yeah. um, 
You uh, won a very large uh, salvage award. Uh, the government protested, I believe, and then the judge says, yeah, right, uh, no, uh, uh, we did figure that wrong. Give them more. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, you now uh, work for the Penobscot Bay Pilots. Correct. I'm one of the four full-time pilots or one of the, you know, one of the four owners of the company that provide the pilotage you know, for large vessels coming in, uh, in and out of Penobscot Bay. And also the ships, um, the you know, the cruise ships that come in and out of Bar Harbor. Nice. Hey, uh, Skip, we've never met personally, but I knew your dad, uh, Toby, fairly well. I forget why I used to drop over to Penury Hall in Southwest Harbor for a fair bit, but I used to. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, question is, uh, knowing your dad, how'd you get to be a uh, boat captain in the first place? He, uh, when I was born, he took one look at me, and. Um, said he's going to be the skipper of his own boat by the time he's 35 years old. Um, and I got and I got the nickname Skipper from that day and uh that was it. My dad was only a recreational sailor. He'd never worked commercially. You'd have to go back several hundred years to find anyone in our family who'd done, you know, uh maritime stuff commercially. Um but it was uh you know I was sort of destined, I think, to be on the water. And water is the one thing that makes sense in my life. I mean, I can get on the water and sort of things make sense to me. Well put, yeah. Um, so compared to being a uh, oil tanker captain, how cool is it to be a pilot? Uh, pilot being a pilot is great. I mean, it is. It is. Um, it's probably the pinnacle of the career for someone who likes being on boat. Um, but we also have the advantage of, you know, not going to sea for long periods of time. Um, we're generally working on waters we like, um, and, you know, we get to be home most every night, um, and, and we get paid to do it. I mean, it's really the best of all worlds, and especially, um, you know, especially when you're docking ships or maneuvering ships in tight areas, you get to do the ship handling, which is, to me, is the real fun part of the job. Skip, I, I have a question that has come in for you. Um, back shortly after Imperial came out, you used to do some slideshows locally. Are you doing any more of those is the question. Uh, I haven't done one for quite a while. doesn't mean I can't do some if, or do another one if someone is interested. I think I still remember the details well enough to, to give a presentation on it. Uh, but I think the last one I did might have been, you know, four or five years ago. Um, but, yeah, if someone's got something that they're interested in, um, certainly they, you know, get a hold of me and we could see if it makes sense. You can go ahead and give your contact information if you like. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. My, the best way to get a hold of me is by email. Um, pstrong at roadrunner.com. Very good. Thank you. Would be the uh, best, is the easiest way to get a hold of me. Now, as you say, uh, being a pilot, pretty cool thing uh, in the maritime world, uh, you know, for merchant masters, yourself especially. Uh, what is the main business of the uh, Penn Bay Pilots? What are you guys uh, mostly, uh, who's mostly coming and going? How busy, so, are, how, how busy are you? Uh, it varies. Uh, it varies depending on the time of year. So as, as a state-licensed pilot, um, first of all, we got to get a Coast Guard federal first-class pilotage endorsement, and then we have to get a state license. Um, and so we're regulated by both the Coast Guard and the state. Um, and then we are basically charged with um, making sure that large commercial vessels move in and out of the waters safely. 
um, without really regards to commercial interests. Uh, you know, the ships may have a commercial interest to get in and out of a port because, you know, they don't make money if they're not moving. Um, and we're the, the people that are saying, yeah, we're happy to we'll bring you in. We look at this. It's like it's either safe or it's not safe to do something. Um, and we get to sit there and sort of make those decisions, um, you know, on behalf of the state. Um, you know, the, the waters that we uh, cover, both Penobscot Bay and Frenchman Bay, um, you know, those are some pretty valuable waters for both recreational um, use, commercial fishing use. Um, we don't need any, um, um, you know, problems here along the coast. So that's what we're, we're really tasked with. As far as the work goes, down in Penobscot Bay, we've got year-round traffic um, coming into Steersport and Bucksport. Probably 80% of the stuff that comes in is uh, fuel oil used for, um, uh, you know, retail use, um, heating oil, diesel, gasoline, jet fuel for Bangor. Um, our, that's the bulk of our products there. We also handle a lot of uh, ships that are bringing in um, different products for Dragon Cement down in Rockland. Um, we probably bring in three-quarters of a million tons of road salt into Searsport every year um, to go out on, you know, get spread on the roads to keep the ice down. Um, and then Bucksport handles uh, jet fuel and no, number two heating oil. And then the, uh, I would say not quite the largest percentage, but at least 50% of our work now is up in Bar Harbor bringing in cruise ships. Um, when I started this business back in, or started, joined the pilots group back in beginning of 97, we had 28 cruise ships calling in Bar Harbor. Um, this past year, we were scheduled for 150 of the big ones, the ones that were required to be on. We're probably another 30 of the little um, American Cruise Line U.S. flag ships that don't require a pilot coming in and out of Bar Harbor. But that's just been the, the biggest growth area um, as far as ships traffic in, you know, the middle part of the state in the last, you know, 20 years that I've been doing this. Captain, I'll ask you a non-maritime uh, question here. Is it more glamorous on the bridge of a cruise ship than it is on a tanker? Um, well, there, there are different things going on. I mean, uh, first and foremost, it's a, it's a shorter job going in and out of Bar Harbor. It's only about a 10-mile job um, going in and out of Bar Harbor, whereas Penobscot Bay can be anywhere from 30 to 60 miles. So it's a it's a shorter job in Bar Harbor. Um uh, you know, I kind of like the solitude of working down in the bay, being on the, you know, the bridge of a tanker coming in and out with basically there, there's a captain up there, a mate, an AB, and maybe a lookout, and that's it. On the bridge of a cruise ship, there's probably 15 people on the bridge. I will say that most of the cruise ships have far better coffee on the ship. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, and, you know, they've got nice baked goods on there. It's always a, so I always joke of September and October when we have the bulk of the cruise ships in Bar Harbor. That's my cappuccino and croissant months. I mean, that's basically every morning there's, you know, cappuccino and a freshly baked croissant up there for me. And, you know, come the end of uh, October, it's like no more croissants or cappuccinos for the next 10 months.
Yeah, as the British would say, it's the posh gig, more posh gig oh, yeah. than the tankers. Oh, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, def- it definitely, it yeah. definitely is a little more posh, but it's, um, you know, I kind of like the simplicity of the uh, the tankers and doing uh, doing that type of work. But you know, cruise ships are you know, cruise ships are a reality for you mm-hmm. know, there are a lot of people that like to go on cruise ships. So. Um, and you know we've got a you know fairly popular area up here. Yeah, when we were talking yesterday, Skip, uh, you mentioned something that I found interesting was uh, the, the high sightedness of the uh, cruise ships and uh, what happens sometimes going mostly out of Bar Harbor. Yep. Oh yeah. So you know one of the things that you know is obviously you know a consideration you know tankers, bulk ships, all of those things. The majority of the um, ship is in the water, so you're more affected by current than you are by wind. Um, cruise ships are almost the exact opposite. Um, while they still have a fairly, you know, good draft, you know, anywhere from 28 to 31 feet of draft for those ships, you then, depending on the size of the ship, you can have 15 to 17 decks above you. Um, like the uh, the Norwegian Escape is a one of the largest vessels we have calling in Bar Harbor um, these days. Um, they have twelve thousand square meters of sail area on that ship, and um, you know it, it's basically it's three acres of sail area. And you so can't when, reef it either. <laughs> no, you can't reef it. Um, so you you've got a lot of sail area on those things, and wind. Is a um, wind is a huge um, factor for doing that stuff. So in Bar Harbor, you know, typically, you know, summer and early fall, our winds are yeah. Everyone, you know, those who are listening to the show know we typically have light northerly winds um, in the morning with a you know southerly sea breeze kicking in in the afternoon. Our winds are generally you know pretty mild most of that time. We start getting into late September and October. We start getting gales running through or leftover tropical stuff coming through, we can certainly have a lot more wind going through. Mount Desert Island is kind of unique uh, with the fact that it's the only spot where we really have mountains coming right down to the water anywhere on the east coast of the U.S. Um, If you get a warm, moist, southerly, south-southwesterly flow of wind coming up the coast, rising up over the west side of the mountains on Mount Third Island, and if it's cool enough up at the top above the mountains, that air will cool off um, and drop like a stone coming down the east base of the mountains. And while we may have only 10 to 15 knots of wind in the anchorage and there might only be 15 knots of wind out at the pilot station, there's a band there just uh, around the Egg Rock area of Frenchman Bay. You can have 30, 40 60 knots of wind in this band where that cold air is just dropping, hitting the water and um, fanning out. Um, uh, it's not quite a true catabatic wind, which is a um, catabatic is a downslope wind, typically coming off of a glacier where the cold air just starts running downhill. So that's essentially what we have right there. Um, and it's, uh, it's always fun to watch. You can see it on the water. You can see it happening. Um, and you know that you you got to tell the captains of the ships, it's like, oh, by the way, we got not very much wind in the anchorage, but um, we're going to be going through a band of 50-knot winds here um, in about three or four minutes. Um, 
And then we have to start doing stuff to correct for, you know, the list that we know will develop from that wind when it hits the side of the ship um, and, and take care of that stuff. It's one of those things. It's one of the reasons why we're on board. We know that's going to happen. We can tell when it's going to happen. And, you know, the ships would not know, not necessarily know that or be expecting it. Yeah, local knowledge, always everything. Yeah, we, local uh, knowledge. Thinking about you, Skip, uh, partly because you showed up in the paper a little while ago. A uh, cruise ship was in Bar Harbor, and uh, we had a big blow uh, last month. Took uh, a bunch of leaves down. First time I'm thinking, uh, forget the date of it. but um, 17 October. Yeah, uh, yeah. Bar Harbor ain't much of a harbor now, is it? No, Bar Harbor, Bar harbor is a really nice harbor in certain conditions. Um, and we're fortunate that there are two anchorage areas there, but... When you start getting a southerly, southeasterly blow in there, uh, especially if it's been blowing offshore for a while, that swell will roll right up and bend around the islands up in there. Um, it's not a good anchorage. Um, it's You've got almost no room to drag if something starts to go wrong before you wind up on a rocky shore. Um, you know, and forecasts like that are, uh, you know, you, you start to think about, do you really even want to have a ship in? Or if the ship is in, what are we going to do? You know, where might they go? Um, it's a big it's a big thing in the fall, especially when we have a forecasted blow like that of trying to figure out where ships are going to go, what they're going to do. Are they going to speed up their itinerary? Are they going to skip some ports? Are they going to hold back a little bit and wait for the blow to go through? Um, it all depends on, you know, the forecast track of the storm and how, how good the forecasting is. But that can be a real consideration. And that particular one was the, um, the Riviera. Um, you know, about an 800-foot ship carries about 1,000 passengers. Um, that day in Bar Harbor on the 16th of October was fine. But it was going to be that night and the next day were going to be some really serious winds out in the Gulf of Maine. Um, and they were trying to figure out where they could go because the forecasted wave heights out in the Gulf of Maine for that night were between eight and nine meters, which is <laughs> that, that's a lot of sea. Um, and they were trying to figure out places they could go. Boston was full. Portland was full. They had already come from Canada. They weren't going back to Canada um, with a forecast of that one of east-northeast winds. Um, you know, Bar Harbor is not a good spot to be. Um, so they were began to ask us, what are you know? Do you have any options? Do you have any suggestions? And, you know, we threw out there. Dave Jolinas, one of my partners, threw out. You know, can always go sit in Searsport and hold out until the weather's gone, um, and um, and do that. And that you know, they looked at all their options and they decided on that one. So we, uh, I sailed them out of Bar Harbor, took them up to Searsport. And anchored them off of Sears Island there, uh, which is a pretty good lee. And it, you know anything easterly, east northeast, anything like that, Searsport's a great anch a great anchorage up in there. This one wound up being a little bit more east southeast, which is not such a great lee, but still better than sitting in Bar Harbor at that point in time. And nobody in uh, Searsport, uh, I'm told, like the uh, uh, local officials were pretty surprised to see a very bright floating city out in front of them all of a oh, sudden. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, the Coast Guard certainly knew about it because they had to, you know, basically give out, you know, an emergency, you know, ENOA um, for coming into a different port. But that's one of those things that for emergency situations, 
you don't really need a whole lot if you're looking for a safe place to put a ship. Um, but it is. It's one of those things that, yeah, it's a, and I'm thinking about just moving the ship. We, If someone needed to communicate what was going on, um, that would have been the agents or, you know, someone like that to do that. That doesn't necessarily fall on our shoulders to do that. And they're such a sight, um, delivering boats, uh, you know, seeing one come up uh, uh, on you at night. Uh, you know, the lights of them are just incredible, the, the size, the top heaviness of them. Um, they are just a sight up close, and again, to uh, all of a sudden see a floating, uh, uh, you know, honky tonk off of Searsport oh, yeah. surprised a couple of people. I'm told. Oh, so. oh, oh, it definitely surprised people. Yeah. It's like one of those, you know, earlier this summer we had to, um, you know, when the cat was trying to um, uh, come back and see how they uh, fit in the berth in Bar Harbor, but because the berth wasn't fully built. Uh, CBP, Customs and Border Protection, couldn't come down and board the ship to clear the crew. And the only other option to go clear the crew was to bring them up into Searsport and have them tie up at the Sprague dock there um, so they could get cleared. Then we could run around coastwise to uh, Bar Harbor. But, yeah, that uh, that prompted some interesting um, uh, radio chatter as we're bringing the cat, you know, first up the bay and then down the bay at 35 knots. Um, that got people, you know, chatting a little bit as well. <laughs> We're talking to Skip Strong this morning. Skip uh, is a uh, local Penobscot Bay pilot. Talking to him right now about uh, cruise ship work and uh, Penn Bay pilot work in general. But also, Skip is the author of a wonderful book called In Peril. And uh, he gets to be co-author because as a uh, young tanker captain, he won the largest Marine Salvage Award in maritime history by latching on to... Uh, a uh, tugboat that was having uh, trouble with his loaded oil tanker, and it had a space shuttle booster behind it. So, uh, again, uh, great talk with you, Skip. I have for years um, made copies of our September 03 uh, program where uh, Alan interviewed you, and I was charged with editing the interview, okay? 40, I think it's 42 or 44 minutes. You uh, speak pretty, uh, uh, you know... Uh, it's an incredible story, and then it turns into a legal thriller. I started to edit it, and I, I sat back, and I said, this is the best story I ever heard. I'm not taking any of this out. And I have, um, uh, as uh, doing boat deliveries, I carry that around. I give that away as presents to... Uh, oh, very, uh, that's nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's still, you know, I still come across people who have just found the book or all of a sudden read it, and they said, yeah, that's the one book that I stayed up all night reading. Yeah, type of thing. So it's, uh, it's, you know, Twain and I worked really hard um, to, you know, make it into a readable story for, you know, both people who are familiar with the water um, and then also for people who aren't familiar with the water. And uh, we keep hearing that we we found a good balance for that. So it's always nice to hear that. Too cool. Giving it to a lot of musicians too. uh, have come back and says, Mike, you got any more of them boat stories? That one was incredible. So, yeah, it's out there, man. And uh, you make us look good. So, uh, again, how's the winter uh, looking for you, Penn Bay Pilots? Uh, it, it'll be it'll be pretty you know steady. Um, you know there will be you know there will be our usual you know winter work of you know uh, Irving tankers coming up the bay delivering you know you know heating oil, gas, diesel, um, ethanol will be coming in and out, jet fuel for the airport. Um, we're uh, actually just finishing up uh well we got two more barge loads from the the chimbro project that they were building up in brewer uh the last two barges um one will be going up uh, later this week and then the final one will be going up to load 
around the 23rd, 24th of this month, and they'll take the final shipment of those modules that they were building for a refinery project in um, Pittsburgh. Um, so you go back to the interconnectedness of transport and how things get moved. The barges are built in Brewer, shipped by barge to the mouth of the Mississippi River by you know being towed by an ocean-going tug. They're swapped over to a uh, inland push boat that are then pushed up the Mississippi River and Ohio River uh, until they get to Pittsburgh, where they're offloaded and you know basically put together like uh, you know building blocks for for a refinery that's being built there in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, and uh, you know, Chibro's done a great great work with this stuff, and uh, hopefully they you know secure more of these contracts. But uh, you know, it's nice work for you know both people in the state of Maine and for us as you know, ship pilots, we get to, you know, boot stuff up and down the river. And it's cool to understand, uh, again, how the infrastructure here works and how yeah. we do stay warm and, uh, you know, uh, how important water transportation is. Yeah. Yeah. Water transportation is the most efficient way to move stuff. Yeah. So both as far as, you know, the the amount of quantities, the, the least impact of, you know, um, you know, environmental emissions and that type of stuff ships are the way to go they're they're not as clean as they could be or eventually will be but they're far better than running 18 wheelers up and down the the highways skip we got a good pilot story out of you this morning there's got to be a couple more uh pilot stories uh you know gonna be a pilot book someday bud well there there could be i mean there's um there are always interesting things to talk about um uh, of of stuff going on, and um, I'll, if you if you've got three minutes, I'll give you one of my one of my most one of my favorite ones, and this is from a bunch of years back. Yeah. Is my uh, one of my partners, Dave Jolinas again, one of my partners. We've we talked going to him, yeah. out that yeah, we were both going out that morning, um, and uh, to do jobs. Well, there was a uh, tug and barge coming in, uh, an old wire boat towing a, you know, probably a six-oil barge or a fuel, you know, a two-oil barge coming up the bay, um, and there was going to be a brand-new bulk ship um, coming up, you know, brand-new ship going up to Searsport. Um, Dave lost the toss that morning, and he got the tugboat. I got the brand-new bulk ship. Um, early morning, summertime, we're boarding around 5.30 or so in the morning. I hadn't had a cup of coffee yet, um, so I'm getting on board the ship and Brand spanking new ship built in China, crewed with Chinese, you know, stored in China and everything else. Get up there. We start doing everything. And typically one of the things that first happens is, you know, you'll get offered, you know, go through the master pilot exchange, figure out what the ship is like, drafts, speed, all that stuff. And then typically you get offered a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or something like that. And they, um, we go through all this thing and, uh, uh, the captain offers me a cup of tea, and it's like, I don't really care for tea that much. So I said, uh, how about a cup of coffee? Um, and he says, uh, no coffee on the bridge. Um, I said, okay, well, you know, get some from the galley. Um, and he says, no, no coffee. And it's like, what do you mean, no coffee? And he's like, brand-new ship, built in China, stored in China, loaded in China, um, on its way over here. There was no coffee on the ship. This was a very disturbing thing for me, and it's like I'm, I'm thinking about this, and I'm, I'm pacing back and forth on the bridge. Meanwhile, Jolinas is on the tug and barge, and he's got a nice cup of coffee. It might not be good coffee, but he's got a nice co- cup of coffee sitting up there in the wheelhouse of the tugboat. I'm pacing back and forth on the um, 
bridge of the ship thinking about the fact that there is no coffee on this ship. And it's like, I finally go up and I said to the captain, Captain, do you have fuel for the ship? And he's looking at me kind of funny, like, what are you asking? Of course we have fuel for the ship. Okay, perfect. You, you don't go to sea without fuel for the ship. He said, no, no, never. We always have fuel for the ship. I said, where's the fuel for the pilot? I said, you have no coffee. It was just like, it was just it was the only ship I had ever been on in now a little over 35 years of being out of the academy that did not have coffee on board of the ship. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> I expect he bought some when he got on shore. <laughs> oh, there was, there was coffee when the ship sailed. There yeah. was coffee when the ship sailed after they discharged so, their cargo. Been good talking to you, Skip. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, you know, it's uh, nice to hear you guys are still uh, happy with that interview and the story. It's like 25 years. Hard to believe that that's uh, been that story. long since this happened. And the punchline is, uh, you know, uh, with more maturity, uh, wouldn't have that story to be uh, laughing about this morning. Yeah. You know. Well, I say, you know, it would certainly be, you know, one of the um, – one of my, you know, I after this happened, I went off and talked to a bunch of the captains that I respected and had learned how to do the job from. And my expectation was that they would have all done the same thing. And these guys were all, you know, 15, 20 years older than I was at the time. Um, and they were like, no, we probably would not have done that. Yeah. Um, wow. it, it's just, you know, it's one of those things that's, you know, um, there are valid reasons for doing it, and there are valid reasons for not doing it. Yeah. Um, so, but I'd still, I'd still look at it. I mean, that's we all. If we're on the water, you take turns. You're either asking for help or you're offering help. And if you haven't been in either one of those situations, you haven't been in the on the water long enough. Good one, Captain. Yeah, great talk to you this morning. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Skip. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. So, uh, let's uh, change gears. Yes. <laughs> Uh, go over to the well. I guess it's salt water now. I was going to say it was fresh water, but it's turned back to salt. I believe our our looper friend Dave is on the phone. Dave Rowe. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Oh, glad to have you with us, Captain the Stink Pot. Adventures the Stink Pot on Facebook. Uh, making the great loop uh, left Portland, Maine, in a Bayliner uh, powerboat. Went up the Hudson. Uh, Erie Canal across the Great Lakes uh, down the Mississippi River and is now you're in uh, where are we this morning, Captain? We're in Mobile, Alabama. Yes, sir. Yeah, nice. And uh, again, um, uh, still coming. And you've uh, successfully got yourself uh, fairly far south, but it's cool down there too, isn't it? Oh, right now. Yesterday it was it was up in the mid seventies, but now it's. Uh... Well, it's up to 48 this morning, finally, Yeah, uh, which is higher than they advertised. So I, I think that's a, a, a net win. <laughs> Great picture of face on, uh, of Stacy, uh, your partner, Stacy Guth, on uh, Facebook uh, the other day of a uh, fellow approacher on the dock in Alabama says, oh, you're wearing your winter coat. And she looked down and says, sir, I'm from Maine. This is not my winter coat. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Good yeah, it's. It, Tonight it's going to get chilly. I mean, we are on the Gulf Coast now, and it's going to make 29 degrees. They're saying so. But we're we're going to have the woolens out. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're about as far south as you're going to get until you uh, get around Florida too. Uh, you know, you've uh, like say um, got most of the way to your goal now. 
Last time we talked to you, you was uh, across from St. Louis, Missouri, trying to fix your uh, direct current refrigerator. Um, how'd you like the rest of the Mississippi River? Oh, it was great. Uh, we were uh, only on it for a short time, really. Uh, what was it, a couple hundred miles or something? And it was running high, and there was a lot of debris to, to dodge. Mm. Uh, you know, our, the props on this boat are not as sheltered as they are on the, on the towboats, so we we definitely had to do a, our fair share of dodging. New is uh, talk to you about this water, which I haven't actually been on. So I uh, talked to my friend uh, Captain Sonny Perkins. Spent his career uh, oil uh, anchor supply tugs uh, down there, and um, says that they say about the Mississippi as you describe it too. Um, you know, you could swim in it, but you could also possibly plow it. You know, uh, yeah, that, exactly that thick and brown. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the one of the highlights of the trip uh, was when we took a left turn on the Ohio River and left the Mississippi behind, and. It went. The water went from brown to green as fast as you can snap your fingers. Oh, interesting. Dave, I was going to read a piece to you this morning, but I've uh, said it somewhere. I can't find it. It comes from a new book called The Pioneers, David McCullough, old historian. And uh, it's about the settlement of the Ohio country uh, after the revolution by um, people from New England. And after the War of 1812, they had so many big trees, so much timber. They uh, conceived and built ocean-going ships in the middle of Ohio. And the trick is to get them to New Orleans and to salt water. First fellow that tried it, uh, Commodore Abraham Whipple. He did, I uh, forget what he did in the Revolution, but he had a pretty good reputation. The tricky part, I'm told, is Louisville, Kentucky. The river falls 26 feet there. There's three chutes. And uh, at high water, two of them are, you know, uh, probably navigable, but nobody's ever tried an ocean-going ship. And... Uh, Commodore Whipple did something that I thought was wicked cool. He turned the boat around backwards. He went backwards down the chute, dragging two sea anchors for steerage. And successfully did it. They built ships, uh, ocean-going ships in, in inland Ohio up until the uh, mid-1840s and, uh, you know, financial panic and so on. But, yeah, talk about some river navigation and problems of current, you know. Uh, yep. Turned the boat around backwards and went down with two sea anchors. Oh, wow. Yeah. I thought that was pretty well, cool. That, yeah. Yeah. That'll do it. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs> yeah. So, Dave, we get to the end of the Mississippi, and we got uh, two ways out, don't we? South Pass and Southwest Pass. Which one do you go out? Uh, well, we didn't do the Mississippi that far south. Uh, like I said, we're in Mobile, so we came down the Tennessee Tom Big Waterway. Oh, dear. Okay, I got you now. Yeah, like I said, yeah, when yeah. we got to the Ohio River, we took a left, and we went upstream until the Tennessee River and then started heading south from there. And a lot of people don't know much about the Tennessee Tom Bigby Waterway, but because we don't talk about it that much, uh, but it's it it was finished in 1984. Uh, it, it wasn't even begun until 1972. They talked about it for years, mm. and it was a bigger dig than the Panama Canal. And hardly anybody seems to know about it unless you know they're driving a tugboat down it. We were just talking to a Penobscot Bay pilot about uh, you know the efficiency of. Uh, moving things by water, and again, oh, yeah. that infrastructure is, uh, you know, uh, as or more important than the interstates and the airports when you get right down to it. Oh, yeah. Oh, we saw so many tows loaded with coal, you know, petroleum products of all kinds, uh, dirt, you know, aggregate, uh, just crazy stuff. 
huge, huge barge tows, you know, and they're just moving stuff up and down those those rivers, uh, and we don't even know about it. But that's where our stuff comes from. <laughs> there you go. And uh, so you haven't actually been out in the uh, Gulf of Mexico uh, fooling around out there. Like, I'm sorry, I miss uh, uh, fought the route here and. Uh, 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 look at your stuff on the internet, but I don't spend as much time now that I have to do it at the library parking lot instead of at the kitchen table. So you know, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, no, we came down and uh, we hit the Gulf of Mexico officially uh, yesterday when we hit Mobile Bay. Yeah. So we've we've just kissed it, and now we're we're at a marina and uh, it's dog in Dog River, Dog River Marina, uh, and we're just tied up waiting for this blow to come through. It's gusting to thirty five miles an hour, and you know. We're, we're taking it in the teeth here where we are on the dock, but I'd rather be tied to a dock and have shore power and heat tonight especially than uh, out there at an anchorage and taking our chances. So yeah. we're happy to be here. Where are we headed next, Captain? Oh, I think we're going to head uh, toward New Orleans and, you know, take take in the, the areas we missed. You know, it, the, the lower Mississippi really isn't safe for a boat this size these days. Uh, it's pretty much just big barge tows. There's no fuel. There's no marinas. There's no services. Uh, so, you know, we would have done a, a thousand miles or so uh, without being able to stock the refrigerator, for crying out loud. I would have run out of beer. <laughs> we just we ta- got priorities here. We just talked to a captain who a uh, pilot who got on a ship that had no coffee, the only ship he ever met that had no coffee. And again, the, a good captain knows how, uh, as he says to the uh, uh, captain of the boat, Captain, do you have fuel for this ship? And the point being, do you have fuel for your crew too? You know, That's like, right. as a good captain, we'll know and make sure there is. Yes. So, so do you go into Lake Pontchartrain? Uh, we probably will go into Lake Pontchartrain. The uh, the marinas, there aren't a lot of anchorages around New Orleans, uh, so we probably won't be hanging on the hook there. So the the marinas that have ready access to downtown New Orleans are on Lake Pontchartrain. So we'll probably head in there and cuff around a little bit and see what we come up with. Yeah, and the thing I got from my friend Captain Sonny was the intensity of the commercial traffic down there. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, what was the other... Um, one of his least favorite pieces of water, the number of uh, oil platforms out there, too, that, uh, you know, they're about everywhere as well, I'm told. So, um, yeah. 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 I, we saw one under construction when we were coming through Mobile Harbor. Uh, tremendously large things, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. And channels to take everywhere, uh, you know, uh, mind your channel and stay in it. And uh, uh, shallow water up tight, and I'm told it also drops off precipitously all of a sudden and uh, off offshore there in the Gulf of Mexico. So, and yep. Sonny uh, again been around the world more than a few times everywhere. He says uh, worked there for years. One of his least favorite pieces of water on the planet. That's what he said yesterday. So uh, that doesn't that doesn't surprise me in the least. I it, we didn't enjoy the Mississippi River. We you know we were a cork on the Mississippi River compared to the big barge toes coming down through there, the big wake, uh, those things, when they're going up river and they're pounding it against a, you know, six, seven knot current, you don't really want to be hanging out behind them. And when they, when you go by them, you're going to be behind them for a while. Uh, and it'll, it'll just toss a, you know, 40, 50 foot boat around for through several miles. Let's put it that way. Hard to be Tom Sawyer nowadays. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. 
And you have to be a pro when you're on, on the rivers dealing with that kind of commercial traffic. You know, you have to know what a one-whistle pass is, what a two-whistle pass is, yep. or overtaking what, what how it turns around. It doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. Uh, you know, and I've, I've been informing more than a few people uh, <laughs> that they they called for a two-whistle pass and went on the wrong side of the boat. I, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's always the overtaking vessel that gets to call the whistle. That's it. And again, we talked about that last time. The difference is uh, whether we're passing on the port or starboard side, uh, making a uh, uh, like we're on an American road or an English road, you know, uh, sort of thing. So, and again, exactly. you've got to talk to these professional mariners, not all of whom are Americans. And, uh, you know, um, so it's interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, we're traveling successfully. Uh, please keep traveling safely. Oh, we shall. We just uh, actually, we. Uh, just picked up uh, our anchor ball, a day shape, uh, so that, you know, during the day when we're on the hook, not only are we adhering to the law, you know, uh, mo- most people with boats like ours don't even bother to put out day shapes when they're at anchor. Right. Um, but, you know, it's a liability thing. And if, you know, God forbid, a cruise ship backed into an anchorage and took out our boat, if we didn't have a day shape, Part of the liability could fall to us. <laughs> and again, a day shape for people is uh, sort of, you know, is like a flag or a, um, again, it says, it's a sign that says, I got an anchor out. Um, exactly. I'm, I'm anchored. Or, uh, oh, what's the uh, uh, best one ever? Red over red, Captain is dead. That's the uh, best day. <laughs> Uh, oh, oh, great! Vessel under no vessel under no command. Uh, two red balls, uh, red over red. Right. Captain is dead. Yeah. So anyway, just for example, Dave, good talk to you this morning, man. Uh, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Time's always always too short with you guys. Oh, and again, we're running out of it this morning, and uh, we got a little bit more business here. So, uh, Adventures of Stinkpot on Facebook. Anybody can check it out and uh, like it. Why not? Because. Uh, you're having the adventure, and we get to, uh, you know, share a little bit of the tangle. So good. Definitely, definitely. And we, we now have a, a YouTube video page, too. So you can check out our YouTube videos as we go, and Patreon and all that kind of stuff that everybody's doing with that stuff. Folk, We're having fun. Folk on the Water, I believe, is your YouTube That's handle. right. Yes. So, yes, very good, Dave. We look forward to talking to you next month. Thanks for joining good. us. Thanks, guys. Bye. Take care. So, in just this last couple of minutes left, we sh- I'm neglecting the, something that we should have talked about at the beginning of the show, was uh, we have a lobster table, a uh, cocktail table. From lobster lobs- pot, coffee table. Yes. Glass yeah. top yeah. with an old uh, hoop trap. Yeah. Um, yep. Kind they don't make one. anymore. Yep. Not a square one, the arch trap, wooden one, and in fairly good shape. Yep. With a piece of, uh, it's got some wrought iron uh, work that brings up a uh, four legs and provide a frame for a glass top. And, uh, yeah, this has been kindly donated to WERU and uh, Boat Talk. Pictures are up on the WERU Facebook. Pictures are on the WERU.org Facebook page, so you can check it out. Um, what are we looking for for this? We'd like to uh, get a new member. We would like to get a new member, yes. We're and this would be a premium. A bit short on the new member score from our fundraiser last week. And uh, it's fairly big. You probably want to be local to get it. But uh, I think Mike. I'll, if uh, State of Maine, I'll deliver it. Yep. 
you get to deliver it and talk with Mike too. So give us a call at weru.org or 469-6600 is our daytime. And again, we'd like you to become a new member, support this here community radio station, where among other things, they let us come in and talk about boats. I mean, come on. We had fun this morning. Thanks to John Greenman down in the engine room. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gambell and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and